This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that looks at films currently in theaters and then connects it to some movies and films from days gone by that you may or may not have heard of and might want to seek out on your own. My name is Stephen Cook, and I am an arts reporter with the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. Hi, I'm Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And if you're wondering what the king and or queen is doing tonight, you might want to tune in to the rest of this episode because we're looking at uh, modern uh, films about royalty, The Favourite, and Mary Queen of Scots, and also looking at some favourites from years gone by. So, Stephen, are you a monarchist? I wouldn't call myself one, but, uh, you know, uh, I do enjoy a good film that gets into the politics, the, the struggles for power that, uh, you know, that, that are in the historical pantheon of, of stories about monarchy, about royalty. And it's a pretty broad subject. There are no end to stories about kings and queens and princes and princesses from Cleopatra to the King and I, Roman Holiday, Anna Karenina, Marie Antoinette. Even uh, I, I watched one not too long ago, uh, A Royal Affair about the, the Danish uh, royal family, which uh, yes, being half Danish, right. I was really interested in. And it's quite a lovely film. Uh, and then, of course, there's British royalty. Those are the films. <laughs> we see most of um you know i i've learned a lot about about uh, british royalty and the royal family through the films i've seen of course not all of them are entirely historically accurate i recognize that but uh, i also it's also something you see in television all the time like i i uh, really enjoyed the crown um on netflix which i which is a terrific series and i'm interested to see where it goes from here uh, in this year i think uh, uh um olivia coleman will be taking the role of Queen Elizabeth, uh, set in the 1970s. Right. Um, and of course, the Oscars have anointed these films when they've been films, uh, The King's Speech, The Queen, and uh, Shakespeare in Love. Shakespeare in Love, yeah, with uh, Judi Dench, who of course had like famously, I think, nine minutes of screen time and won an Academy <laughs> Award for Best Supporting Actress. It happens. Um, and of course, there's Shakespeare, who has, you know, looked at royalty in his work, it's all a, the Hamlets and the Henry the Fifth. And a the catalog the of kings. Yes, indeed. Um, now, today, we are looking at two films that are in cinemas. And actually, we're also going to discuss Outlaw King, which is on Netflix now, and then uh, talk about some older films that that tell the story of, of royalty. Uh, and, you know, how many of these are about the struggle. I mean, I mentioned the struggle for power, but also religious struggle between the Protestants and the Catholics. That seemed to be, you know, the, giving an, an, a religious underpinning to these stories really kind of gives the characters motivation. You know, if God is involved, then they are game and they are willing to kill. <laughs> yes, things get anything. messy when God gets involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's really something. Now, um, the favorite which is the first film we're going to talk about today, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, the Greek filmmaker of Dogtooth, The Lobster, and The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Uh, Now, those other films... I like them. I, I really appreciate the sort of satiric tone and the humor, the dark humor in his films. But this is, uh, no pun intended, my favorite of his <laughs> films. Uh, the and I think it's he's mixed up. He didn't he didn't use his usual writer in this in this uh, in this film. He he collaborated with other writers, and this story 
is I think this one has real heart uh, and it has real tragedy too and that's probably why I was so fond of it. Um, it's set in the court of Queen Anne who I didn't know very much about but she lived between 1665 and 1714 for those who don't know uh, and she is alternatively a sickly self-pitying and petulant character but still manages to be sympathetic because she has a tragic background and that's also partly because Olivia Coleman is so great. Now, she is uh, she has a, a confidant, her closest friend and confidant is Lady Sarah Churchill, the Duchess of Marlborough, played by Rachel Weiss, who runs all political and military affairs for her queen. And then we get this new character arriving, Abigail, played by Emma Stone, with uh, a pretty much on-point British accent. She's terrific. Uh, and uh, she's Sarah's cousin, and she sort of you know, once walked amongst the gentry, but she lost everything. And then she sees this opportunity to seize something back for herself. And she sort of inveigles her, her way into Anne's good graces, upsetting her cousin's plans. And uh, yeah, and it becomes this sort of love triangle, but also power struggle between these three women. And I, I love that. I love the fact that they're basically three leads in this story. And all the men are these sort of wigged, be-wigged fops. <laughs> yes, very ineffectual. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a terrific film. I, I have a friend who is not a fan of Yorgos Lanthimos, and I, and I said, listen, this check this one out. This is this is going to change your mind, and it did. She really liked it. So, yeah, I uh, I, I, I can't wait to hear what you thought of The Favorite. I, I really enjoyed this film, and it's you know, definitely topped, you know, it came out sort of late 2018, so some people are just kind of getting around to it now. But it definitely would be uh, high on my list for best films of uh, of, of last year. And uh, yeah, I I like the Yorgos films that I've seen, and uh, but there is this underpinning of cruelty to them that gets lightened a little bit. I mean, it's still there. <laughs> yes, um, yes, and that's kind of what gives this film its snap, crackle, and pop, as it were. But you know, things like uh, you know the, his films often have cruelty towards animals in them, which is right. uh, uh, you know in in this film, there are a number of bunnies around, and uh-huh. we, you know, we almost get there, but then yeah. it kind of backs off. And it's almost like kind of if you know his other films, you're kind of like really worried for those bunnies, and um, and uh, it gets close, but uh, thankfully backs off a little bit. Uh, but but there is a there is a bite. Uh, he is willing to go places that uh, other filmmakers may not want to go. Um, and just and and not necessarily in a Lars von Trier way, but but just taking things that extra little step along the way, you know, like where she's eating cake, yes. <laughs> even though it's making her completely miserably ill. Uh, you know, she's a uh, the queen is a victim of her appetites, mm-hmm. as it turns out, and and um, you know, but occasionally has that wisdom and force of uh, of uh, regency and so on, and, and that's what makes her such a fascinating character. And Olivia Coleman plays both sides of that fence so incredibly well. And you're right, the, the power triangle is completely within the, the, the between the the three women. The men are kind of you know doing their affairs of state or whatever, and but also uh, just being these preening um, lords and. Uh, you know, consorts and all that kind of uh-huh. thing. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I like that aspect of it. You, you know, usually it's, it's all about, you know, it's a King Henry and so on. And the, and the women kind of just bow their heads and shuffle around in the background. And, and this is a nice, uh, flip of that uh, that movie kind of uh, cliche, I guess. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, and I really liked, one of the things I liked about the film is that it kind of sets up the Abigail character as kind of your heroine. She's new to this whole environment and she she's clearly uh, vulnerable and she's just doing her best to try to survive, really, and whatever she can do to survive. But as it goes along, your allegiance as an, as an audience member, I think, it shifts 
from character to character as you sort of see how they all have something to lose. And Abigail's character does things in order to survive that are actually pretty terrible. And you start to wonder, well, what at what cost survival in this kind of world? Uh, and yeah, she is. And that's I think the thing I like most about the film was that you you. Uh, you, you don't know who to root for. And if you do root for one <laughs> person, shifting, you, yeah. you keep shifting in, in ways that I thought were just fascinating. Uh, and I think I also wanted to say that one of the things I loved about the film is how it's directed. Lanthimos uses this sort of fisheye lens a lot of the time to create this sense of that they're in this kind of beautiful golden cage, you know, this sort of bubble. And he really likes the whip pan. So just before, <laughs> yes. just you know, down if, long hallways. Yeah, and... yeah. Like there's, and there's elements of that that remind me a little bit of, of, um, yeah, the long hallway thing remind me a little bit of Kubrick, but there's also um, there's also a little bit of Peter Greenaway here too in that oh, kind of sure. like excess, like and decay, right? Um, there's yeah, yeah. Barry, Barry Lyndon meets the Draftsman's contract yeah. kind of going on here. Indeed, indeed, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it is very funny at times. It's quite sad, and uh, and yeah, and 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 uh, and completely unexpected like it was it was a film where i just didn't know where it was going to go and um i quite uh, i quite love that i love that feeling of of not knowing you know where it's taking me yeah it's it, it, like you say every every character has those shades of complexity and yeah abigail is clearly like you know very machiavellian in her uh, desire to be the queen's favorite as as per the title but but uh and you kind of think well does it does it require her this to have this one-upmanship over her cousin um and and you kind of like debate back and forth but it's like you know i think you know i always think back to that scene early on when she's assigned to be a scullery maid and and the other servants trick her into putting her hands into a bucket of lye and uh you know that's that seems to be the moment at which she realizes that it's like it's all or nothing kind of thing And, and and so it's like that's 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 when that becomes the eyes on the prize moment for her and she'll stop at nothing to to get you know as high as she can even if that means trouncing uh her cousin who you know shows her a fair bit of affection at the start but uh you know quickly realizes what she's what she's up to and uh you know when when uh you know, when the the balance of power shifts ultimately it's, it's yeah you're right it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. at the end because uh you know one one was doing everything and even though she was consolidating her power it was still in defense of the queen and uh whereas abigail is just trying to get to that spot but doesn't really have the political know-how to do what her cousin did all those years before so it's you know the, the, it's comedy tragedy both masks are on this film and uh yeah, the line is is very blurred between the two of them. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, another film that we have in our sights this morning uh today is uh is Mary Queen of Scots, which uh, is directed by Jody Josie, sorry, Josie Rourke, who is a I believe a first-time film uh feature filmmaker who is, but has a lot of experience in British theater. It's written by Bo Willimon, who uh I who's a name I know from his work with House of Cards. So the Here's someone who knows his way around a political drama. But um, Mary Queen of Scots did not impress me, not nearly as much as The Favourite. And maybe no. I saw these two films 
within a like a 48 hour period and it's possible that Mary Queen of Scots has if I hadn't seen the favorite before I might not have been so uh, critical of it uh, now this is this takes place in I believe 1569 and it's a story we've seen in various other shades elsewhere uh, in uh, uh, Elizabeth which uh, hopefully we'll talk about a little bit later um, starring Kate Blanchett but uh, you know the story of Elizabeth the first um, you know again Protestants versus versus Catholics Mary Queen of Scots she's been raised in France she comes back to Scotland and uh, that's Mary Stuart played by uh, Shersa Ronan and uh, immediately gets embroiled in the political games playing of all these men around her who you know either mean to to control have their own power over over uh, the the countryside over over the the Empire um, or uh, or you know are, are have their own motivations for manipulating Mary and then uh, down in England, uh, Elizabeth I, played by Margot Robbie, is the English queen, and Mary Stuart actually has a bigger claim to the throne than than Elizabeth does. So there's, you know, there's this complicating matters. Mary's Catholic, Elizabeth is Protestant, and there's various hangers-ons and these dudes, you know, uh, manipulating things, trying to some some helping, some hurting. Uh, and then in the midst of that is David Tennant playing yes. John Knox, a kind of all one note villain pulpit screamer. Um, yeah, as, I was I was surprised at how disappointed I was at his performance. <laughs> it's like oh, Doctor Who is as a preacher, kind of a Rasputin kind of preacher manipulating the minds of the of the, of the populace. Uh, but it was you know most most he's either like in his pulpit yelling epithets at the top of his lungs or he's like scowling in the in the court in front of a fireplace it seems like maybe his scenes were all filmed in over a couple of days yeah and yeah, uh, and he was inserted into the movie and it's like obviously it's an important part of history uh and he you know he's magnetic but yeah you're right it is kind of this weird almost cartoonish yeah. <laughs> performance whenever they go back to him he's yelling in front of people basically yeah. <laughs> is what he's doing she's a harlot on the throne yeah, yeah exactly yeah. Well. so so yeah it's uh, a film that um uh i felt like the, especially in the first act the whole every utterance every word is feels expositional it's just it's hard to believe people actually ever spoke like this and um it's very on the nose and i didn't enjoy that as it goes along i sort of felt uh, more affection towards the film but uh i also felt that elizabeth although it's the film was very much sold as this like power struggle between these two women uh, Elizabeth is very much a supporting character in this. And in fact, I think you could cut much of yeah. her scenes out and have it not affect. I mean, all the blood and the real drama takes place in Scotland. And uh, it could have just been about Mary Stewart in the way that um, uh, Kapoor's Elizabeth from uh, 1998 is really just about Elizabeth. Like you, you could they could they could they could have cut out and then have have Elizabeth I actually appear very late in the film just in a in a brief cameo and that might have been more potent uh, instead we keep going back down to England and having these moments what don't that don't really feel as um as essential and uh yeah and then there's other directorial choices that I kind of struggled with um, but then you wouldn't get to see Margot Robbie with the pox you know <laughs> kind of thing that actually you know I was actually I'm not, I won't say happy to see that cuz it's pretty gruesome but uh but at least it explains I mean I know that's a historically accurate fact that uh that the part the part of the reason why Elizabeth the first wore that sort of white lead paint uh is to cover the the scars from the pox yes um uh, yeah so uh, yeah, the, the, some some aspects are kind of accurate, and other parts are not. Um, 
oddly enough, this we had this discussion before we rolled uh, digi- uh, digital. <laughs> I guess we didn't <laughs> tape. roll tape. <laughs> rolled ones and zeros. Um, that uh, Saoirse Ronan's casting as Mary Queen of Scots is actually you know pretty. I mean, obviously she's you know she's Irish. She's got that Celtic heritage. But th- if you look at the paintings of of uh, or the icons or whatever of uh, Mary Queen of Scots, um, Mary Stuart, that there's actually a pretty decent resemblance there. Whereas Margot Robbie doesn't really you know look any. I guess you put anybody in that makeup and that wig. I mean, I would look like Queen Elizabeth if you put painted my face white and put on a big red fright wig. But I, I might pay some money to see that. <laughs> it could happen. It could still happen. Um, the the last, the, the what is what I've seen as the most accurate rendition, I guess, uh, looks a lot more like Tilda Swinton. Um, you know, longer of face and, you know, with a piercing glare and all this kind of thing. So, um, but uh, I guess they wanted a younger Elizabeth for, for this film. So, uh, you know, to go from because this takes place over a fair bit of time. I mean, it's it's kind of weird how they stretch out some moments to unbearable length, and then other moments, uh, like when she, you know, she's in the tower for seven years, and that's like about two minutes in the movie with with no mention made of you know, you know what kind of torment she might have gone through being in prison. But I guess because there, there wasn't a lot going on, just her locked in a cell for for uh, with her altar for so long that um, I guess that doesn't make as compelling cinema. I I, um, I liked it more than you did. I think that I think there's enough in the performances and the look of the film and and, and you know some of the way the intrigue is handled that that uh, I enjoyed it a bit more. But but things you're right that the role of Elizabeth in this story uh, plays out as you know fairly unnecessary for a lot of it and then then of course uh, there's a famous you know everybody's talking about the scene where they actually meet towards the end of the film which of course uh, didn't happen in history as far as we know and and the, the film kind of paints it as a big secret that was never revealed or something like that but obviously having these two stars in the movie you got to have them share at least one scene together but then they they put them in this crofter's cabin surrounded by you know, flapping sheets. <laughs> and so they, you know, they're like talking through burlap uh, until like the big reveal when she finally sees the face of her, her cousin or I guess they are, they are related distantly, I guess, uh, for the first time, first and I guess last time. And, you know, things kind of fall through because uh, historically Elizabeth kind of goes back and forth on her feelings about Mary Queen of Scots. And I, I guess the film portrays that to a certain degree. But, uh, you know, which I, I guess the point of that is showing that her fate was kind of, you know, really out of her hands. Uh, you know, that, that, that you know, the, the court in London, the parliament was going to do what it was going to do um, with or without the queen. And, and, and historically, I think, you know, she signed a death warrant, but then went back on it saying, well, I didn't really mean to hand it out. I just had it there just in case kind of thing. And. Anyway, it's 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 funny where it bends over backwards to be historically accurate, and then doesn't in other other aspects. But um, you know, from what I gather, like some of the letters that are read in the film are actually taken nearly ver- uh-huh. verbatim from actual letters and that kind of thing. So I, I guess that adds some um, ver- verisimilitude. <laughs> I always stumble over this word, but verisimilitude. Ac- that's it. That's it. I, I'll say accuracy. Um, <laughs> But I, I like the performances enough, and and the scale of the production enough, and 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 all that Scottish history stuff. Yeah, I find fascinating. Um, 
I, I wonder, we, we probably shouldn't, uh, historical accuracy is really a moving target. And, yes. Uh, and I, in honestly. many of these films, they have, they have adjusted for the sake of drama and dramatization. And yeah, it's, I'm, I'm no, I'm no scholar and no historical, uh, like history, uh, uh, buff necessarily. I'm interested, but, uh, at the same time, uh, as a film goer, I'd much rather have a dramatic film that, that tells a, a really riveting story that, takes liberties than have something that is super accurate and yet doesn't Bone dry. Work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, as my high school teacher, uh, John McDonald was fond of saying, Hollywood is not history. And, uh, you know, repeated that to us over and over again. I'm assuming he got more than a few students who did reports uh, based on movies they'd seen. And, you know, and Napoleon, you know, didn't necessarily look like Rod Steiger. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but, and, you know, I've, I've kept that in my mind ever, ever since. Uh, it, it's nice when they hit some of the right notes along the way and, and know that they went to great degrees to, to get things right. But yeah, it doesn't always make for good drama. And that, you know, like speaking of Queens, uh, you know, having to come to terms with my feelings about Bohemian Rhapsody and I, I enjoyed the film, even though some of the things in the, the timeline of it really drove me around the bend. And I, but of course that's from living history. That's from yes. like, you know, I, you know, I remember, you know, we will rock you coming on the radio. Sure. And, sure. And that uh, is the most amazing segue in the history of these 73 episodes, Stephen. <laughs> Speaking going, of Queen. Going from British royalty to, to Freddie Mercury. That is awesome. <laughs> Full marks to you, sir. I really appreciate that. Well, you know, we're talking about Kings, Queens, historical accuracy. Um, I'm not going to go on about Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, you know, it's like <laughs> I thought the performances were great and it told the story well and the music scenes were great, but riveting. But the uh, but yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, it, it has some issues around. They, they made they accuracy. made weird choices that I didn't think needed to be made. You know, especially given that this is all stuff that happened within recent memory. But um, but uh, yeah, none of us were around for Mary Queen of Scots. So there's a lot of uh, conjecture there, and and maybe this is a story they just haven't gotten right completely yet i mean it, the, the earliest version i can think of there's a, a Catherine hepburn version directed by john ford about mary queen of scots that was kind of a dud for both of them for both the, the director and and the uh, the lead actor that is that's not so well regarded i think there was one in the 60s just called mary queen of scots that that i don't i've not seen and is, i don't think is that well remembered so i feel like maybe there's still another story to tell there but sarah ronan was so good here that i was like oh i can overlook a lot of what's happening here she but is the irish streep she's terrific that's true yeah. that's true Let's stick with uh, Scottish royalty and claims to the crown and everything, and 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 also uh, a recent film, and look at Outlaw King. And this is a film uh, directed by David Mackenzie, uh, the director behind Hell or High Water, which was a surprise kind of indie hit about uh, you know about poverty and crime in in the Southwest of the, of the U.S., uh, starring Chris Pine. And uh, director and actor are reteamed here for a very similar yet different story uh uh set in scotland in but the early 1300s. 1300s yeah uh and uh yeah it's outlaw king it's about the story of robert the bruce the legendary scottish uh, king who uh who actually defeated the british unlike his uh forebear uh william wallace who was depicted by mel gibson in braveheart and in fact uh 
Outlaw King kind of picks up where Braveheart leaves off. Like basically, you could even consider it a sequel to Braveheart in in a way. Um, I liked it more. I'm going to say it right out. Oh sure, <laughs> I liked it more than Braveheart. Though we've talked about films that are in the canon, so to speak, that uh, that we don't like. And I remember I mentioned Braveheart at the time. Um, yeah, this is a terrific, uh, engaging sort of action historical war picture uh and uh yeah it's on netflix right now and it has a great cast uh well chris pine does the the scottish accent quite well though i noticed his his style his sort of laconic acting leading man style i it feels to me very american um he plays plays him as this kind of quiet yet thoughtful yet um, prone to, you know, violence uh, when yeah. necessary, uh, leader. And uh, it's, it's, and he's surrounded by British actors, thespians, and I think he does a terrific job. I mean, he's got, um, just to name a couple, Stephen Delane uh, is, uh, is the, uh, the English king, Edward I. Uh, um, the elder Robert is played by James Cosmo, who is also in Braveheart. And uh, and then Florence Pugh plays the English girl who is uh, basically agrees to marry um, Robert, and uh, they have a, a love affair that is actually quite a nice note uh, of grace in this in this film, which is otherwise you know very quite intense. And uh, I really this is one of those films I really felt for the actors. You know, I they shot a lot of exteriors, and I feel like they went to these remote places in yeah. the uh, the Scottish uh, uh, I won't say wilderness but out there in the in the you know on the on the heather uh, and uh it is it is quite it looks cold everyone looks cold <laughs> yes. all the time and damp and um, yeah in the mud and at one point uh you know uh, actors are are like bathing in like icy looking streams and you're just like wow that looks chilly like that must have been a uh a quite quite a challenging shoot but it is it pays off i thought it was a it's a terrific film. It's uh, it actually, in some ways, reminded me. Um, for those of us who are big Game of Thrones fans and are been waiting patiently, or maybe not so patiently, for the final season, this might be a nice kind of holdover because it has that kind of uh, dramatic. Despite the also including the fact of Stephen Delane, who was uh, Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones, uh, it has that kind of um, that kind of drama, that kind of intensity of like you know the power struggle and the uh, the unlikely king uh rising to save his people yeah it's it's got that nice i mean it's got gravitas where required there's there's humor in it as well uh it's got romance it's got a little bit of everything i i i kind of wish that um you know i i would have liked to have seen this on a big screen and this is kind of but this is it's the same with uh the coen brothers ballad of buster scruggs like you know it's it's a gorgeous film it's got these great prairie vistas and and some of these amazing sets and and even the costumes and and yet it was always meant to be on netflix and i was i kind of look at these things and i kind of go was this meant to be on the big screen and then they decided to cut their losses and go with netflix or you know was it always it's always a good question i mean i felt the same way about roma this fall this past fall i should say uh because we're in january now 2019 i've felt more of those feelings of like disappointment that i'm really enjoying a film on netflix and wish i could see it on a bigger screen and that's that's i'm sure a feeling we're going to get more and more of as netflix starts to produce or help produce or distribute more and more good quality films yeah i always wonder at what point do they enter the conversation it's like well you know if we put this out in theaters that means we've got to spend so much more on promotion you know like like look at bird box which is basically 
kind of a ripoff of a quiet place, even yeah. though it's based on a on a book. It's not you know it's it's not just made out of whole cloth. It, there's a, there's a novel that it's based on, but it's still it seems very similar to a quiet place. It's just oh, it's sight instead of sound. Okay, I get it. Um, uh, but you know, if they played it in theaters, then the budget to promote it is almost the same as the budget to make it. Mm. And whereas you know, with Netflix, oh well, we can do all this viral marketing, and it's a lot cheaper, and people will make memes and it'll market itself for us and you know which is just kind of a mind-blowing way to think about it but that you know because it's like you know sandra bullock people go to a movie to see sandra bullock and you know that's that seems like a no-brainer but but in this case you know it's like well you know what let's just put on netflix and you know and uh and then get like 60 million viewers like yeah over over the christmas holidays or however many 48 million or whatever it was um so uh, you know obviously it allows the stuff to get made. How it gets seen down the road, well, that depends on the quality of of the film. But like, I think Roma had kind of a better. Like some of these did have limited runs in theaters. I think Roma had like a better kind of. Well, if you lived in Toronto and Chicago, Montreal, Toronto, or uh, New York and L.A., you probably had a chance to see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it's but, actually at the TIFF Lightbox right now. Yeah. Uh, and yes, yeah, that's true. Though, though, those of us out here in the provinces, yeah, we we do not we do not get those opportunities as often. <laughs> but you never know if if Roma, you know, when the Oscar nominations come down, Roma does. Or even Buster Scruggs does well in those, and it, you know, although going yeah. by the Golden Globes, probably not. But well, I happen to know just a little plug here for my volunteer gig at Carbon Arc Cinema here in Halifax that they are uh, looking at getting Roma possibly to screen at Carbon Arc. Oh, that'd be in nice. the next, uh, when Carbon Arc starts up again in February. So, so anyway, keep your fingers crossed and check at the Carbon Arc uh, Facebook page or website if you're uh, <laughs> if you're if you're considering going to that because uh, I, yeah, I'd love to see Roma on the big screen. Very. Um, very so effective plug, but yes, but yeah. we, we've got, <laughs> we've got uh, plenty of other things to talk about. Yeah, here. but but Outlaw King does it. It has. You know, I kind of go into going okay, uh, yeah, you know, because of course I've I've been watching a lot of sword and armor <laughs> movies. <laughs> you know, getting getting ready for this, and it's just like oh, there's another bunch of guys on horses down a country road in Scotland <laughs> meeting up with an emissary from the court and blah. You know, but but this uh, you know so. I, it's, it all starts to look a bit the same after a while. It's but, true. But I, I did enjoy Outlaw King. It's got a certain verve uh, to it uh, that I appreciated, just like Hell or High Water. You know, the, the you know, you know when, it, when it kicks into action, it really kicks into action. The 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 battle scenes are extremely violent. You know, we get we get disembowelings, we get hangings, we get we get. Uh, Obviously, uh, William Wallace, uh, you know, we last saw him at the end of Braveheart getting his entrails pulled out. Well, guess what? They also drew and quartered him and they hang part of his torso off of a cross in the middle of some town in Scotland. I can't remember which one it was, but, you know, and and, and uh, I guess they distributed parts of him to all parts of Scotland to, to warn people off of rebelling against the English crown. But, of course, it just stirred things up. And, and uh, you know, spoiler alert, Robert the Bruce is actually successful um, where William Wallace wasn't for for any number of reasons. He, he seems more intelligent. Um, he doesn't seem as tied to the concept of freedom, which, which uh, you know, which was kind of not really a concept at the time. Uh, you know, lower taxes, though, that's something that people can relate to. Yeah. That's, oh, they can always relate to that. Yeah. Less taxes uh, and uh, and more bloody battles. And the, the battle scenes are very effective and, and clear and they're clearly delineated. Like Mackenzie shoots them in such a way that they actually can actually follow the action. It's not a lot of Ridley Scott shutter weirdness and 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 quick cutting it's i mean there is quick cutting obviously but it's not a ma- you know, maelstrom of just incomprehensible images and and i appreciated that fact as well uh and uh yeah a l- l- lot of humor um 
historical accuracy, who knows? Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, but but for, for example, like we were talking about this as well, uh, the Robert the Bruce, uh, you know, they actually found his remains and ended a forensic reconstruction of his face, and he looked kind of looked like the actor Kieran Hines. Uh, look him up uh, on Google, and, and maybe you can see what I'm getting at. But did yeah, not movie star handsome uh, Chris pine with a graying beard but, <laughs> but that's okay you know it's 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 kind of i guess what we want from uh we want our kings to look like matinee idols i guess and that's uh-huh. what we, we get here but uh but he but he's very effective he's got you know he's got nice moments of doubt and uh and so on and and uh i find chris pine to be a pretty expressive actor um you know when when he's given the right uh, right role and and he's he's fine here now, uh, speaking of actors who don't look like matinee idols, <laughs> yes. uh, you went back and watched a film from 1933, The Private Life of Henry VIII. And in our, our discussion today about uh, films about royalty, uh, this definitely qualifies. Is this the first time that Henry VIII uh, appeared on uh, in a feature film? I, I, I I'm, mean, I'm pretty sure there must have been silent film portrayals of Henry VIII. I mean, he's he's a favorite. Uh, he, he, you know, of all the sort of ancient English kings, he's the one that always comes to mind the most because he just the guy had uh, the guy had great image control. You know, in terms of like you know the look, you know the rotund guy with the beard and the the puffy sleeves and and everything and um, and, and you know the, the kind of lusty love of life and everything. Even even though you know considering what happened to his wives i'm i'm guessing he was kind of a psychopath of sorts i mean uh, you know you don't just blithely consign wives to the chopping block unless unless there's something horribly wrong with you but uh you know i guess i could say it's the, the times and the religious complications of not being allowed to get divorced and all that kind of stuff but but um but Charles Lawton definitely was the first kind of memorable portrayal of, of Henry VIII that stuck in anybody's mind. There have been other actors who've played him for sure. Uh, Richard Burton in Anne of a Thousand Days, which is quite good, with Genevieve Bujold as uh, Anne Boleyn. Uh, a bit dated, but but still kind of lovely period piece from the late 60s, I think, um, that I saw years and years and years ago. Uh, but but uh, but Lawton got the Oscar for it. Uh, he was the first uh, best Actor Oscar from a non-Hollywood production, because um, of course the first Best Actor Oscar I think went to Emil Jannings, who was a German actor who had, for a silent film, uh, actually a couple of silent films, one of which is lost. Uh, I don't even know if he spoke English because he went back to Germany shortly afterwards. But um, but but Lawton uh, made a big splash for the Private Life of Henry VIII. It was a British production uh, directed by Alexander Corda, uh, who had to uh, really kind of stretch his resources to make this film. It actually looks fairly low budget when you watch it um and and it's out there it's it's in the public domain so i'm sure there's like umpteen versions of it on youtube and so on you can probably find a good version maybe at archive.org or someplace uh and uh, lawton is quite uh quite enjoyable in the role i mean again it's a film from you know 80 years ago but but lawton uh you know he, he embodies the role obviously he was a large guy physically he fits the look of henry the eighth it doesn't take much to make him look like him he just has to grow a beard and put on um you know skilts uh, skirt and tights and uh, puffy sleeves but uh but he's he, you know you can he's very magnetic i think lawton maybe was a bit of ahead of his time as an actor i think uh maybe he was a method actor before method acting existed in fact uh you know if you go into the trivia about this film uh supposedly he he did kind of really get into the role of Henry VIII. Uh, apparently, he did something, historically, I guess, Henry VIII, you know, when he argued with his wives, he sometimes would bite them on the arm. And apparently, Lawton did that to some of his co-stars. Is that on screen? 
Uh, no, I guess this is like I guess this was off screen. I guess okay. or like you know if, if 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 one of the women playing one of his wives screwed up a take or something, he would give them a bite. I don't know how hard he bite them, but but apparently he really got into the role of Henry VIII. And I guess the joke is that for years afterwards, he'd go to restaurants and they'd bring him out like a full chicken, <laughs> roasted chicken to eat because of course that's you know the famous scenes are of him eating. Uh, Right, because you know, he was corpulent, as they uh-huh, say, uh-huh. and is frequently shown just eating huge chunks of of roast chicken, uh, which is kind of like the kind of the cliche about Henry VIII that continues on for decades afterwards. Um, it's kind of a comedy. It's it's fairly light, even though like you know we see two of his wives at least going to the chopping block to have their heads removed in this film. It's it's kind of light uh, in its tone. Um, you know, the, the, those characters that obviously didn't appear in history, um, along with the the wives who did, um, they, it's kind of light on the court intrigue. It's mostly about the relationship between him and the various women that kind of became his wife and then we either divorced or sent away or beheaded or, or what have you. Um, Elsa Lanchester, his real life wife, who was probably best known for playing the Bride of Frankenstein, uh, is great as Anne of Cleves. Uh, somehow she escapes... Uh, uh, capital punishment. I, I'm not sure how. I think maybe their marriage wasn't consummated. I'm not. I think that's how that he got out of that one. But um, but it's 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 an enjoyable kind of a relic. It's uh, like I say. I I I have my dollar store. Uh, like I actually paid a dollar for this DVD of it, and it actually looks pretty good, and was quite watchable. So uh, I recommend it just for for. Uh, um, uh, you know, kind of a historical thing, but it's 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 short. It's it's like just over ninety minutes. It's it's very brisk. It's very funny, and and Lawton gives a great performance. Yeah, I I can't remember who else was up for the Oscar that year, but uh, in 1933. But I think he was probably deserving of it. I think he got another one shortly after for Mutiny on the Bounty for playing Captain Bly, and he became kind of the the Anthony Hopkins of his day, the go to right. British character actor who gets all the the choice roles. But but Lawton was a was a genius actor. And yeah, and of course it. directed the the one time he made a feature film was uh, Night of the Hunter, which, which uh, is a classic. So. Yeah, he's he's the ultimate one and done filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. I guess he wanted to make other films. Night of the Hunter wasn't exactly a hit. Um and you know he was it was pretty late in his life and he was getting up there in years and uh, I don't think he maybe maybe just didn't have another one in him but uh, that one film is definitely one of the greats. So uh, speaking of royalty in film, we have a number of others we want to mention here. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to the Line in Winter from 1968. It's it's amongst speaking the, of Anthony Hopkins. Speaking of Anthony Hopkins, yeah, there's the segue I should have chosen. Uh, his first role on screen i gather and uh it is a film that i think of it's kind of an alternative christmas movie i always think about films that you could watch that aren't really christmas movies but have christmas featured in them this is one of them this will make you wish this will make you happy that that um your if your family drives you nuts at uh, at the at the in december then this drama uh-huh. watch this one it'll definitely put things in perspective it's christmas 1183 henry the second played in all his barking bellowing glory by uh, peter o'toole who lets his wife eleanor of aquitaine out of her tower for christmas um and she's played by Catherine hepburn he keeps her there for i kept her there at that point i think by for 10 years because otherwise she has a tendency to go to war against him and all of their sons are equally ambitious john uh 
played by Nigel Terry, Jeffrey, played by John Castle, and Richard the Lionheart, played by Anthony Hopkins. They're all stuck together for the holidays, along with Prince Philip II of France, a very pretty young Timothy Dalton. And uh, yeah, and they're all everyone scheming for strategic advantage, and it is... Uh, really a, a well-written film. Of course, it's based on a play, and it has all that, like, verbal jousting that I, I quite enjoy. Um, I feel it's a little bit long, but it's it's really well done, and uh, there's a terrific John Barry score as well. Oh, the, the chemistry between Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn is... I mean, are there two better actors? I don't know. I don't think so. And uh, to see them... I, th- I think this is probably the only time they're ever in a film together. But, uh, yeah, the, you really get sparks flying in this film. And uh, I haven't seen it in a number of years. But um, And I'm trying to think I think back of probably Laserdisc days. It might be one of those titles. Um, but just it's, it's just a rich emotionally. It's rich dramatically. The dialogue uh, really crackles throughout. Uh, James uh, Goldman, I think, was a, um, you know, a pretty stellar playwright who also did the screenplay, which I guess that sort of thing helps uh, when, that, when the writer knows the work so well um, because they wrote it initially. Uh, and, uh, and that, yeah, just all these great Shakespearean stage actors, um, some of whom would become bigger stars years later. Uh, it, it's... Um, yeah, it's it's a rich feast of a movie for sure, and it and it and it does and it and it does have that feel of the time too. I think it gets the feeling of the period down pretty well. So it it pretty much uh, ch- checks off all the boxes that you want for uh, royal historical drama. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't know very much about Henry the uh, Second, so you know. But I mean, obviously, Richard the Lionheart has been show has shown up in many films, including when we talked about Robin Hood. Uh, he is a yes. character that shows up in those those stories. Um, that was what is our last our last uh, or, or a couple of episodes ago. Um, now, also, yeah, it's uh, funny that the, it's it, they're almost like these weird sequels because then we see the same characters show up in other. Fi- I mean, it's like because sometimes you think of imaginary sequels where characters kind of cross over and so on. But of course, you know, with royal lineage, of course, these people played a big role in history and then when they make films about it there's going to be that interlocking it'd be fun to kind of line up a chain of films uh in order of succession so you could go from like you know from going from braveheart to uh outlaw king and then of course edward the prince of wales at the end of outlaw king uh he becomes edward the second because of course the king edward the first was patrick mcguin in braveheart and then he's uh what's his face from Game of Thrones and Outlaw King. I can't remember his name off the top of my oh, head. Oh, Stephen, uh, Stephen Delane. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who's fantastic uh, and a lot more subtle than Patrick McGowan, I have to say. <laughs> and then Edward II was the topic of a film made by Derek Jarman because he was, um, you know, ostensibly he was gay uh, and uh, was murdered by his lords, basically, uh, partly for those reasons, because they felt he was an ineffectual king. Aha. Uh-huh. And, uh, and his uh, death apparently was fairly gruesome as depicted in that film. And that's, you know, so that's, that's, and that's a film we're seeking out. I don't, the Germans work can be hard to find these days, but uh, Uh I remember seeing that years ago and it was, you know, again, a different take on, on royalty and, um, you know, power politics and sexual politics kind of clashing in a major way. But, and then of course now we've got, um, you know, the line in winter where so many of these, major players kind of cross over. Yeah, it would be great. I, I'm all for that. Maybe maybe someone on some... Uh, Trying to get my flowchart skills going. <laughs> enterprising film lover there uh, out on the internet has put together a list of like, you can watch these different films in order and and actually get a sense of the, uh, the, the, the succession of royalty through the ages. That would be terrific. 
Now, we didn't watch only films about historical uh, actual people who lived. We also watched uh, a couple of things that, about uh, uh, mythical kings. Uh, you watched Camelot, the musical, yes. well, uh, about King Arthur. So uh, uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? We I also watched Excalibur, which uh, goes over the same story in a very different way. Well, yeah. I mean, Camelot, uh, I mean, there was a King Arthur, supposedly, um, but of course, it's it's like Robin Hood. You know, there are like historical antecedents, but of course, it's been completely blown into yeah. into, into myth at this point. Um, you know, was there Lancelot? Who the freak knows? But um, uh, yeah, I watched Camelot, and uh, obviously, the story of King Arthur has been. There's like one every decade. Didn't uh, Guy Ritchie have a go? Sure uh, did. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then there was the one with with Clive Owen. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, so, well, that's actually pretty entertaining, but it's it's not a great film. Uh, you know, there's Knights of the Round Table. It was the first MGM film in Cinemascope, first widescreen MGM film from 1950, whatever, 53, I guess, um, with Robert Taylor, not one of my favorite actors, playing King Arthur. Um, uh, and, you know, The Sword in the Stone, <laughs> you know, the Disney right. film, which, you know, of course, was the first one that I saw as a kid. I saw Sword in the Stone and, you know, and that was my introduction to Excalibur. So anytime I see, you know, King Arthur with his sword, I wonder where the singing birds and mm. with the talking owl and all that kind of stuff. Um, so Camelot, of course, was based on a, a, a very popular stage musical. And uh, and and, and uh, of course, the stage musical had Julie Andrews and Richard Burton and was very popular so of course they replaced them with richard harris and vanessa redgrave not known for their singing prowess no great actors great but actors not, not not musical stars and uh yeah it was um though harris does did have a musical career well he, he did i mean obviously macarthur park was a big hit i think i'm guessing camelot uh kind of emboldened him to 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 go <laughs> forth i mean teamed up with jimmy webb who's a brilliant songwriter um but uh, he kind of spoke sang his way through those films as he does through this film uh vanessa redgrave i think is dubbed i'm not sure by who uh and uh it's really long it's three hours long uh and uh they burn through like three or four of the best known songs in the musical in the first 20 minutes and you're left there going okay what happens in the next two hours and 40 minutes thankfully uh david hemmings shows up as Mordred in the second half to kind of uh, as King Arthur's sort of bastard son uh, to kind of stir things up and cause rebellion um, and so on. The, the, of course, there's the romance between uh, Guinevere and Lancelot, played by Franco Nero, uh, in his first English-speaking role. And, and uh, from what I gather, his English was not great at this time. And, and they don't really have a ton of chemistry. I, th I think the film was a bit of a dud at the time. I think Camelot kind of gets lumped in with the mega musicals of the late 60s that were... Uh, disastrous failures you know, paint your wagon and dr doolittle and star with julie andrews and then eventually hello dolly with um barbara streisand and uh it's not hard to see why but it it is beautifully shot a lot of it happens on even a lot of the exteriors seem to be on sound stages um you know they put a lot of money into it the blu-ray looks pretty great and and some of the musical sequences are, are great it's directed by joshua logan who also made one of the worst musicals of the 50s, South Pacific, which is just kind of a big, globby, sprawling mess. And I think he may have even made Paint Your Wagon. I might be wrong about that. So he doesn't have a great track record with these films. He was more of a stage director, I think, who just kind of lucked into a film career. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the choreography in here is pretty pretty sloppy. And I, I guess they were trying to get away from that tight, you know, super organized seven brides or seven brothers kind of choreography for this film. Uh, and it shows because they get very far away from it. But, um, 
uh, you know, it's 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 it just I think at the time it just reminded people that uh, the how much better the Broadway version was because the Broadway soundtrack LP was a huge seller. My mom had it. I used to play my mom's version of it, and uh, even just on LP, you could tell that the original stars had a lot more charisma and drawing power than what we get here mm. well uh speaking of the arthurian legend uh the one of the first versions of that story i ever absorbed with excalibur from 1981 and uh this was the sort of r-rated john borman directed film and uh i remember liking it as a teenager because partly because of the violence it was bloody and intense and over the top and then partly because of the sex there was just it was just you know r-rated they really went for it and uh and it 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 stimulated my teenage <laughs> imagination. Well, I rewatched it, and it feels like a complete folly in retrospect, having seen it again. Um, Nicole Williamson plays Merlin. He, he brings a, a little bit of charm to it. Uh, there, this isn't a film without humor. It does have some sort of slapstick humor, but... Um, it just it's a, it's mostly a lot of men lurching around in armor looking uncomfortable uh and uh it is it, having been made after python after monty python the holy grail it feels almost like they're doing monty python but straight you know and i, I it's hard to believe that they weren't aware of monty python when they made this film but um yeah it is it is still i i would i don't i very very uh cautiously recommend it for fans of Helen Mirren and Liam Neeson, who famously, you know, connected and became uh, off-screen lovers after this uh, this film. And Patrick Stewart, who is pretty much terrible in his small role. But, um, you know, it's it's fun what to see gusto. these. What with gusto, exactly. And that's the thing that's that if there is someone who likes, you know, who enjoys bad movies done with enthusiasm, then maybe this is the way to go. Uh, it has everyone just yells and screams in this film. Uh, and that's the tone throughout. Uh, oh, and a young Gabriel Byrne as well as Uther. Um, this is a, a really peculiar film and it just feels just ill-advised watching it from like watching it recently. Yeah. I remember loving it the first time I watched it, but then I remember that I watched it with a bunch of uh, Dalhousie costume design studies, <laughs> theater costume design studies students. And of course they were just, you know, in, in ecstasy over this movie and the, you know, just probably dreaming of someday having some sort of budget to do something like this. Um, cause it, it is over the top in every aspect. And, and, uh, you know, it's got that, it's got the same kind of soft focus, slow-mo look that like a lot of Ridley Scott's legend was shot with. Mm-hmm. I think, I think these two films are kind of peas in a pod in a way. Um, you know, with the mystical overtones and everything like that. You know, there's no giant demon here, but, um, you know, we, we get a very funny uh, Merlin and Nicole Williamson, who, who is an actor I always enjoy uh, watching. He, he always brings something odd and unusual to whatever he does. Um, you know, it was fun. It was actually nice watching him do uh, revisiting Robin and Marion recently. He, he's a great. Yeah, he's John. really good in that. Um, but yeah, this is this is definitely a, a movie that's less than the sum of its parts, I think. But some of those parts are so great. And it's so splashy and dumb and over the top that that I, I can still kind of recommend it if you go in knowing what to expect. But, uh, you know, because it's, it's you know, they did spend a lot of money on it. This, I mean, the, the armor looks completely it, it looks like about a thousand years too early for that kind of armor. Like talk about historical inaccuracy. But um and and it is it is fun to to play like watch the watch the cameos like to see all those actors kind of pop up in these small roles and stuff. So there are a lot of sort of more little pleasures to be had with Excalibur, and you know, and some of the battle scenes are kind of 
well shot and everything like that. Um, but I, I, I agree that it probably has not aged terribly well. It does seem very much like a film of its time. I, cause I remembered when, you know, when I saw it and, and I did, you know, like I said, I did enjoy it quite a bit the first time I saw it and wondered why it was, you know, it had been deemed kind of a, of a disaster, but you know, as I got to know more about screen acting and so on, I, Oh, I can see why some of this would seem a little tone deaf, um, you know, now, but, uh, you know, some folks still really love this film, and uh, you know, I, I guess maybe it's just the the atmosphere of it, the look of it, uh, you know, the kind of gung ho nature of it, and the violence. Uh, you know, the, it's the sexier King Arthur too, and I guess I guess that's something to appreciate. But but uh, yeah, it, it doesn't hold all all together so well, but. Uh, I will probably return to it again down the road. You can have my copy. Okay. I know I've got my own. (laughs) I'm fine. (laughs) So before we wrap things up, let's get back to reality. (laughs) I want to, I want to give up a couple of more shout outs um, for, well, first off for Queen Margot, which is a film that came out in 1994, La Reine Margot. And uh, this is a French film about royalty. And of course, the French culture very much in the last 200 years built upon their revolutionary spirit. I mean, you see it now. They are it's an activist culture. And uh, so it's interesting to yeah. see a film that goes back further and looks at what happened in Paris in 1574 with uh, the Catholics and the Protestants. And oh, the, we could uh, go down a whole French revolutionary rabbit hole. Maybe we will in another yeah, episode. When, yeah, when something appropriate comes along, we can sure. do all that you know, from between... Marie Antoinette and Napoleon. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there's lots of movies about that period. But uh, this is um, Queen Margot, who has been married to a uh, a Protestant uh, a Huguenot uh Played by Daniel O'Toole, um, Henry de Bourbon, and uh, Isabella Johnny, the lovely, radiant Isabella Johnny, is Margot. Uh, and this is an effort to try to calm things down in uh, in this like tinder tinder hot uh, weekend in Paris in the summer. But uh, things go crazy, and there is murder, and thousands die in the streets as the Catholic uh, uh, monarchy sort of puts their foot down and tries to stamp out any possible uh, rebellion. And and uh, this is not a, your average romantic uh, royalty story. It gets it's very bloody and uh, and it's very intense. There is there is a, a, a romance between Margot and she has a passionate affair with a with a soldier, La Mole, played by Vincent Perez. And Asia Argento also plays an Italian baroness who's on the scene. Um, but uh, it's it's one of those films where everyone is very pretty. Everyone. And in fact, it, it being 1994, everyone kind of looks like Chris Cornell, you know, they have <laughs> yes. long hair and and, uh, and, and hollow, hollow cheeks. Um, but I just as as a film about French royalty, which we don't see very often, I really recommend it it's potent it's intense it's violent it's bloody and um and it, it's the production values are terrific. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a real. I absolutely uh, anyone who's interested at all in films about royalty, this one is one not to miss. Yeah, oddly enough, you could make the same case for the same thing was happening in England, and somehow it gets played down because, of course, I guess they're the, the Protestants one, so they get to tell that story. <laughs> but uh, but uh, both Henry under Henry VIII and Queen Elizabeth the uh, first, hundreds of Catholics were slaughtered and and you know put to death for their faith and their you know alliance with the Pope and so on. So it's you know it was happening all over the place. It's it's kind of it's a pretty terrible uh, period in history and and uh, you know because we're we're looking at these films that are seen from the viewpoint of the royalty. Um, certainly in the English case, you don't 
get to see all that. That's all. That was all out of view of, of, of the court and everything. But it was happening in the streets and in the villages and, and so on. But, but yeah, Queen Margot really sticks your nose into the Huguenot massacres that were occurring. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I remember learning about them in, in school and, and it was hard to comprehend how such a thing could happen, you know. But of course, it keeps happening even within our lifetime. But it's just this is the medieval version of it. Yeah. And it's just as horrendous now yeah. as it is now. Now, Elizabeth from 1998 uh, takes place actually just a little before the events in Queen Margot. Right. And uh, it's a story of, of the rise of the Protestant Elizabeth, the queen in waiting when her half-sister Mary uh, uh, dies. And, uh, you know, and Elizabeth ascends, but the men around her, many of whom have, have Catholic uh, advisors or Catholic bishops or lords, are not willing to um, to support her and work against her. So it's about her sort of consolidating her power and then taking it and uh, and separating from the Vatican and uh, and doing, you know, what she does uh, and, and basically controlling, understanding the cost of power. And in some ways, um, you know, that is that is the story of a lot of these royalty these stories is like what does it what sort of human cost is there to being a leader to being a, a being monarchy um there's a in elizabeth elizabeth is a really fun movie to revisit i really like seeing it there's lots of great supporting cast here uh, along with kate blanchett who made her name on this film uh christopher eccleston uh joseph fines richard attenborough jeffrey russ rush um vince cassell in a great supporting role uh, even daniel craig and sir john gilgood as the pope uh, <laughs> and, you know, amongst the female cast, Emily Mortimer, Kelly McDonald, uh, Fanny Ardent. Um, this is uh, this was really fun to revisit. I, it was it was as good as I remembered it. Uh, I will say, though, that the sequel that came out in 2007, Elizabeth, the Golden Age, is a little bit of a disappointment, even though they got the same cast and the same uh, creative team together. It doesn't quite work as well. But for fans of Mary, Queen of Scots, for those of you who did like it, it's worth seeing just to see that story told again um, with the. Uh, Samantha Morton playing uh, Mary Stewart. Yeah, the Golden Age is still worth seeing. It it just feel it felt a little more prosaic, I guess, or, or matter of fact compared to the first uh, Elizabeth film. It's just like, well, here's the rest of this story. Uh, I guess we got to show her defeating the Spanish Armada. That's and, right, and all and all that. Which you know, it, it, it's it, from what little reading I've done on Elizabeth the first. There is, I mean. You know, the, the, the country teetered on the brink a few times over the course of her reign. And, you know, some of it, you know, some of her success can be chalked up to skill and some of it can be chalked up to luck um, because the, the country was near bankrupt many times. In fact, it tried to stay out of wars just because it couldn't afford them. And then but the Spanish Armada was a threat too big to ignore. And, uh, you know, at least it pay, played out in England's favor, um, ultimately. But um but Blanchett is great throughout. Um, if you watch one, you kind of feel the need to watch the other uh, and uh, see how it, see how that story plays out with again with many of the same people in place. And 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 she's fantastic in it. so much for listening to Lens Mere Ears, uh, our look back at uh, films about royalty and uh, monarchy, power struggles, uh, 
and all of it uh, actually pretty puffy shirts. Puffy shirts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're all happy to check these out uh, for you and uh, and talk about them here. Thank you again for listening. If you want to reach us, we can be found on Facebook. We got a Facebook page. We're also on Twitter. Uh, Lends me your ears has a is a Twitter account that you can follow and you can uh, get in touch with us. Stephen, you also have your own Twitter account. I do at ns underscore s c o o k e, and my Twitter account is named after my blog, which is Flaw in the Iris. We also have a Patreon account if you'd care to support the work and the fun that we have here. Many, many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities and for playing this show every second Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And also thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network. Thank you again for listening. We will be talking about movies again very soon. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 